0: Life can only be touched go in the into here the and the now. And they
1: they really to really try to... Let go. Go. See. See
0: this is Tricycle Talks.
1: Hello, welcome to the special edition of Tricycle Talks. I'm Emma Lucas. I'm the managing editor at Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Joining me today at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion in San Diego, California, is Jeff Wilson, who is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies and East Asian Studies at the University of Waterloo, and is also a tri Contributing Editor. He's the author of a new volume called Mindful America, the Mutual Transformation of Buddhist Meditation and American Culture. Uh, Mindful America is the first comprehensive exploration of the practice of mindfulness here in the United States, and that's what Jeff's going to be talking to us about today. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
1: So I wanted to start out, um, some of the more obvious questions that people think about and they think about mindfulness would be, what is mindfulness? Does it work? Uh, And actually, you take pains in the book to avoid those questions. Uh, Why is that so?
0: So uh, there's there's lots of people talking about how to apply Buddhism, uh, mindfulness specifically, and uh, suggesting that you can do it uh, in order to lose weight or in order to uh, lower your stress or in order to uh, increase your work productivity and this sort of thing. And I'm very interested in those those applications, what people are applying mindfulness to and why they're uh, making these applications. These are not uses that mindfulness meditation was put to traditionally in Asian Buddhism. So I'm very interested in the processes of the, the adaptation which is going on here. The question of whether mindfulness actually delivers the results that are claimed for it or whether it doesn't do so, and when it does, maybe it, maybe it helps you at work but doesn't help you with parenting, or maybe it helps you have great sex but it's not so good for your waistline. You know, It's possible that it has some, some effects here and doesn't work there. These aren't really uh, my questions. Um, I leave that to people who want to do those sort of uh, uh, more intensive uh, clinical uh, trials uh, around that sort of thing. I want to ask the sort of uh, questions about cultural adaptation and, and cultural influence. Why is it that Americans use mindfulness in this way—a way which it was not used in in Asia uh, until a, at least uh, very recently—and so um, what's what's going on with that? That's that's really a big question for me.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, as you just said, it's it's not like. Uh... You know, traditionally in Asia, people have been using mindfulness to, you know, be more productive at work or, like you said, have better sex. Um, So why is it, do you think, that Americans are sort of uh, focusing on these questions and adapting mindfulness in this way?
0: Well, I think what it is is that uh, mindfulness has been uh, marketed to the mainstream and it has been taken up uh, largely by the mainstream. And mainstream Americans are not terribly interested in uh, being, you know, renunciate uh, ascetic uh, monastics uh, living in a forest somewhere. Mainstream Americans uh, have uh, interests such as sex and money and pleasure and mindfulness, which was actually uh, originally intended uh, primarily to detach us from these sort of things in a a celibate uh, monastic context in order to uh, decrease uh, attachment to sensual pleasures and uh, reorient the mind, purify it and reorient it towards a uh, uh, nirvanic uh, sort of goals. Uh, well, those are not the goals that mainstream Americans have. So uh, part of the argument that I'm making in the book is that uh, Buddhism in each culture that it finds itself in uh, is readapted to meet the desires, the needs, the goals of those cultures. So since uh, North American or Western, uh, certainly American specifically, since that's what I'm looking at the book, since those mainstream uh, desires are different and the mainstream goals of a a 21st century uh, American are different from someone in a pre-modern Asian Buddhist country, Therefore, they're going to take these practices and apply them to the already existing uh, desires that have been uh, formulated by their cultural upbringing. Especially because many, many of the people who are involved in mindfulness have an upbringing outside of Buddhism and outside of uh, the practice of meditation or mindfulness or whatever. So they're already fully formed as cultural subjects by their American upbringing. Then as an adult, most often, they come into contact with Buddhism at some point. So naturally, they use the Buddhism that they encounter for um, uh, partially um, uh, achieving the ends that they already had, right? Um, and this is especially true because they're actively told by the promoters of mindfulness that uh, that's perfectly fine, that you, uh, if you do mindfulness... It will lower your stress. It will help you get along with your kids. It will help you get better grades. It will help you to have a better orgasm. It will help you to get that promotion at work, all these sort of things. So since they're being told that it's good for these things um, and are not being told to give up these things, instead, uh, why in the world would we expect that it would operate in in a different fashion?
1: So you mentioned the marketing of mindfulness to the mainstream, and one of the ways that that's happening is that there are all these scientific studies coming out that are speaking to the efficacy of mindfulness to achieve these ends that you mentioned. So it's really being marketed as something that's scientific, that's non-religious, that's secular. It's a technique that doesn't come attached to any you know particular religious beliefs. Um, and when you hear claims of that nature, to what extent is that claim a fact, and to what extent is it an argument?
0: Well, uh, I would like to say, and I'm, I'm only somewhat facetious with this remark, I'd like to say that, that it's always an argument and never a fact. That... Uh, religiosity or secularity or uh, scientificness, I think I'm making these words up as I go along here, all of these things are essentially, um, they are arguments, and especially when we look at the mindfulness movement, they're strategies which are deployed um, at certain times in order to meet certain ends. So um, when uh, a person who wishes to promote mindfulness is speaking to an audience which is likely to appreciate uh, Buddhism or appreciate religion, then mindfulness and its connection to Asian Buddhism is is talked about. When they're talking to an audience which uh, maybe is not familiar with Buddhism or not necessarily open to this sort of thing, uh, then it may be talked about in terms of spirituality instead. If it's being talked about to uh, another sort of audience, which uh, is not going to be friendly to uh, religion or to uh, spirituality, then it may be presented in that case as secular or even as scientific, if that seems appropriate. So what you find is that people, when they're attempting to talk about bringing uh, mindfulness into the public schools or into some other setting, which has been declared by American culture as allegedly secular, then they frame it as secular, and then if they're uh, on a retreat somewhere, uh, they frame the same practice as now being being Buddhist or being religious. So it really just matters uh, in terms of the environment in which the conversation of the moment is taking place. So that's why I say these are these are always arguments that are being made. People are arguing that it's secular at this time they're arguing that, but they may not argue it um, at other times and other places. Um, there's no there's no real facts here if. If mindfulness was um, essentially Buddhist or essentially religious or essentially secular, uh, this would actually violate Buddhist principles. Uh, So uh, we have to recognize that uh, mindfulness and religion and Buddhism, these are always constructed categories that are constructed out of uh, various elements in different times and places. When we look at uh, the situation of um, the mindfulness movement, I really get a start in uh, Burma in the uh, colonial and then post-colonial situation. It is explicitly uh, talked about there as being religious, as being Buddhist. And then uh, with um, sort of a Vipassana being taken to uh, India by uh, uh, Goinka, he's, t- he's taking these uh, uh, Burmese mindfulness practices, but he is a Hindu teaching Hindus in a non-Buddhist environment. So now he talks about Dharma because that's a category which makes sense in an Indian cultural milieu, but he's not he's not he's saying you don't have to be buddhist to do this although everything he does is a buddhist practice they they chant their refuges to the, to the to the three jewels and they uh use pali and they they're using a buddhist monastic technique. so they call it uh dharma there and then when it comes further to the united states well dharma is not a native category that makes sense here so instead they're talking about religion in some cases or spirituality is a really good way to sell it in the late 20th and early 21st century and then they'll even take it further to call it secular when that enables it to go into yet further uh, uh, areas, right? I think the essential thing to think about is that mindfulness is a a sort of evangelical impulse from within Buddhism. That's the way it's being used. So the desire is to insert mindfulness into as many different elements of American culture as possible. And so there are places where framing it as secular allows it to go into this place and then framing it as spiritual allows it to go to this audi- other audience which is not so interested in science and framing it as Buddhist helps over here but then hiding the Buddhism helps when you're hanging out with a bunch of neuroscientists or something so um, uh, that evangelical impulse the idea that mindfulness, whatever it is, is the answer the answer to what, what? whatever you want it to be that the mindfulness is the answer, and so you will therefore strategically frame it to uh, demonstrate that it's the answer in any given situation.
1: Mm -hmm. And do you think mindfulness's ability to sort of fit into these different frameworks uh, works in part because the understanding of what mindfulness is in the United States is a little bit loose? You know, different teachers use it in wildly different ways. That's
0: right. Arguably, there's uh, a whole range of things that are being grouped as mindfulness that are not the same thing. Uh, sometimes they even seem to be uh, uh, opposite to, to the regular ways that mindfulness is now being talked about, uh, and yet they can—you can put the label on it—and because it is, um, it's uh, fuzzy in a way, but it's kind of positive. No one's like. I hate being mindful, I want to be mindless that that just doesn 't seem to compute right so um it becomes a a somewhat empty empty uh, signifier that you can use in in all these different ways, kind of traveling along the same paths that Zen did for a previous generation, right where things you can just be so zen and and it doesn 't refer to the extremely hierarchical and ritual form of you know lineage based Buddhism which one finds in Japan. it refers to uh, being cool, you know, kind of liking a, a simple aesthetic you know and uh, aesthetic and, and just um, uh, applying it to anything you know motorcycle maintenance or, or whatever it may be, right. So mindfulness now, uh, because it's used in this uh, fuzzy way, that actually gives it more power. Preciseness um, is is a limiting factor, right? And actually uh, knowledge is a limiting factor as well. Ignorance is more useful if you want to reinvent things. If you don't fully know what what the past has been or don't fully recognize what you're doing, this actually enables you, therefore, to be more creative, to make it up as you go along. And being inexact, you know, which is a kind of the step uh, uh, back from um, actual ignorance, so being inexact uh, is a way that allows you to then uh, make it more malleable so you can reshape it in, in all these different instantiations that are specific to this time, this place, this audience, this speaker— these motivations uh, for for speaking in the first place.
1: Hmm. I think there's definitely, as you were calling it, an evangelical impulse. Um, And I think that lots of Buddhists in the West sort of view mindfulness as a skillful means to bring people into the Buddhist fold. And in a way, it's a little bit deceptive.
0: Yeah, you can make this argument. So um, we're at the American Academy of Religion, and uh, I was in a session this morning, and there was a presentation on uh, the use of uh, mindfulness in uh, American public schools. And they were talking there, uh, the presenter was talking about um, this idea of stealth Buddhism is essentially what mindfulness is. And this is actually a term which has been used by some of the people who are promoting uh, the the mindful school movement, which is just one sub-movement of the overall mindfulness movement. It's something I talk about in in the book to some degree. And so um, anyways, she was talking about that they say, well, this is stealth Buddhism, that We hide the Buddhist elements of it, and uh, we bring it into the schools, and then it's useful to the people there. And then we believe that they will uh, uh, likely go further, that, you know, they learn the denatured stuff in the classroom. And then that's that's okay for, like, making the classroom nice and quiet and and calm and good, you know, as a learning environment. But then likely, they believe, people will be uh, interested. And so outside of school, they'll start doing their homework, so to speak. They'll start researching these things and discover the Buddhist connections. And then they'll start bringing on board additional elements of Buddhism. This is what they're saying. So this is, it operates sort of in a stealth mode. Um, hearing this, uh, I couldn't help but be struck by the similarity to what was going on with the Christian Coalition, which was a, a evangelical Uh, conservative um, uh, Christian uh, political uh, movement of uh, the late 80s and and early 90s. And um, they used to run uh, what are known as stealth candidates. So their idea was that uh, they felt that Christians were losing control over uh, the public schools and therefore uh, godless, uh, uh, satanic ideas such as uh, uh, you know evolutionary theory were being taught in the in the school systems and also sex ed and other things that they they disapproved of. So the idea was because they couldn't garner enough votes um, uh, on their own overt platform saying, "Hi, I'm the Christian guy. Uh, vote for me and I'll get rid of all these uh, uh, evil atheists" or something like that. What they would do is uh, on on the local level. Um, they coordinated this so at uh, school boards across the nation, they would have people run as stealth candidates. So they would just say, hi, I'm Jeff Wilson. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Republican and I'm, I'm running uh, because I want, uh, f- uh, you know, f- uh, fiscally uh, balanced uh, school budgets and this sort of stuff. Right. And this was the the platform you'd run on. But the reason you got into it in the first place was you wanted to get to sit on the school board to have control over the textbooks and over the, the courses and everything to get the the stuff that you saw as, as bad out and to replace it with more Christian-friendly or indeed Christian content if possible. And so uh, there were many places in the U.S. during that time period where uh, these stealth candidates successfully ran and were elected and began to insert – Christianity in in a stealth mode in back into the public school because they, they felt it had been uh, illegitimately removed, right? So I just this this uh, sort of similar pattern and the use of the same language, which I'm not asserting that somehow uh, the people who are in the mindful school movement look to the Christian coalition as models of how to do this or are aware that they're traveling along a similar trajectory. But I just note that it has a similar sort of situation whereby they say, well, this is skillful means i'll just I'll just um uh present the useful technique of Buddhist mindfulness, but I won't call it Buddhist, and it will help the people and they will eventually go into Buddhism and so this will mean that they're going to school learning Buddhist type content, and this will cause them to become Buddhists at some later point, right That's the same argument that the conservative Christians were making. And that outraged people, right? Probably outraged many of the same people who are the ones pushing the stealth Buddhism, the stealth, you know, uh, the, the, the mindfulness in the schools these days. But when it's when it's their own uh, um, uh, religion or their own practice, let's say, and something that they believe is the answer. Of course, Christians believe that Jesus is the answer, and you know, these mindfulness advocates they believe mindfulness is the answer to again, what is was the problem? Well. Any problem you bring is is said to be solved pretty much by mindfulness, by uh, especially uh, you know uh, the more extreme advocates. So uh, it, it really is uh, fairly similar in a way. This is not to say that this is an illegitimate practice that they're doing, and I'm not suggesting that uh, school children are not benefited by doing mindfulness potentially, or that teachers are not benefited by mindfulness or having a mindful classroom. My role as a scholar of religious studies is not to judge whether these are authentic or legitimate or uh, appropriate in some way. It's to observe and analyze the trends that are going on to the to the best of, of my ability, and then to point out that these things are occurring. You know, the audience can decide for themselves whether they support this sort of practice, whether uh, they feel it's problematic, whether they want to uh, support it but tweak it in some way. Uh, but my job is, as a... Um, Uh, a scholar in in, uh, religion and cultural studies is to observe this and uh, uh, analyze it so that we can uh, sort of talk about it above board and and figure out what what others think is going on.
1: Mm -hmm. As you said, uh, I think most of the people listening to this podcast and and Buddhists in the United States in general would look at the example that you just talked about, um, you know, with the sort of stealth Christianity, you know, getting seats on the school board as extreme. And and there's danger to that. You can clearly see why that would be dangerous. But the propagation of mindfulness, especially um, in, in secular institutions like schools, it seems benign. You know, how could you not benefit? What's what's wrong with it? But it does seem like you're saying here that you think that there there's a slippery slope we might be traveling down.
0: Yeah. So um, I suppose it is possible. Um, but I really don't think that the first step is um, my kid eats a raisin quietly in in class, and then the last step is jackbooted Buddhist thugs come in and, like, uh, shave everybody's head or something. I don't think the slope is all that slippery, and I don't think the destination is all that dire. Mm -hmm. I'm just noting a similar type of practice and a similar type of pattern that's occurred in these two different American situations, which were both about attempting to bring uh, religious elements strategically into the uh, allegedly secular public school system, right? And so uh, people from very different um, demographics, very different uh, you know, um, uh, religious demographics and so on, nonetheless used similar strategies and are using similar strategies to accomplish aims that are actually fairly similar. Now, again, it's not my point, uh, m- my role really to say this is dangerous and that is benign, but I'll, I'll just point out uh, that for the conservative Christians, they believe, of course, that uh, bringing Christianity is a benign thing to bring in. It, it, I mean, it's a, not even benign. It's a benevolent thing. It's an important thing. It's a crucial thing as far as they're concerned. And mindfulness advocates, are they have similar ideas. I mean, they believe not only that this is um, a wonderful practice and a potentially helpful practice, but many people are, um, as I say, quite evangelical with their rhetoric. And so they say things like uh, this can potentially— uh, save. They can save the children. They can save the classrooms. They can save American society. People, you know, are, are writing books about how um, we need everyone to be mindful. We need Congress, especially, to be mindful. And um, and this will therefore cause a, a positive transformation in American society. Some some of these books, including some of the best selling of all these books, uh, talk about how the entire world can be potentially saved if everyone would just become mindful. So. Uh, there's a there's a there's a there's a larger agenda which is going on here. It's not just about oh uh, I want little Timmy to do better at math, and so uh, he needs to sit down and, and follow his breath for for ten seconds or something like that. It's it's hooked into uh, larger agendas and the idea that um, there's there's a, a salvific sort of power uh, to to mindfulness practice, and maybe it, it would work. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to be uh, obstructionist about this. I'm I'm trying not to. Come down on on either side, and just to note what is going on here, because we haven't had people really uh, analyzing these uh, sort of uh, practices, especially not analyzing them from the outside in, in a scholarly manner.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course, there's an irony about uh, you know it being marketed as a distinctly non-theological technique; uh, it's being used in a distinctly theological way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So hey, this is. Uh, people say that uh, mindfulness is a non-judgmental form of awareness, right? That there's a lot of talk about the non-judgmentalism, at least in, in the most popular forms these days. But it comes with a whole package of judgments about uh, what would be good in life and what should be avoided in life, and what would be good even for society and what would be bad for society. So these are not actually uh, uh, practices that are value-free and that operate. Um, uh, in a in a in a ethical vacuum, but when the values and ethics are not explicit, then there's a lot of room for the values to be attached to be uh, kind of whatever is floating around in, in, in the mainstream, uh, because it's you know it's kind of nebulous exactly how you want to use it. So then it's available for appropriation by various people with with various sorts of agendas.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, I think that many people might object to your characterization here of mindfulness as essentially religious in nature because it's been backed up by multiple scientific studies, you know, lots of scientific research. So uh, to you, is it possible for something to be uh, backed up by science and still be religious in nature?
0: Yeah, I think uh, certainly just to answer that in a narrow way, it is possible for something to be backed uh, by science and to be religious in nature. Uh, For example, uh, petitionary prayer has been shown in similar uh, clinical studies to uh, be effective, uh, at least allegedly effective, in uh, the treatment of uh, various sort of illnesses. So there's uh, uh, many uh, famous papers about how uh, people who are being prayed for and did not know they were being prayed for, and nonetheless uh, had uh, quicker recovery rates and so on than uh, people in control groups, right? So this is what uh, you know Christians and others who want to uh, advance that sort of argument would point to these papers and say, "Hey, look, uh, prayer to Jesus Christ. This is uh, clearly uh, a scientifically validated." form of uh, treatment. So why are you not letting me bring it into the hospitals and into the schools and this sort of thing, right? So we have to be careful. When we want to say scientifically validated, well, there's a lot of things that have some seeming uh, scientific validation. For me, though, I'm not terribly interested in whether it actually works or whether it doesn't actually work. I'm interested in the processes to which Buddhist meditation is, is subjected in order to make it seem uh scientific or seem secular or seem religious for that matter the uh, the default assumption seems to be that it that it was religious and that then uh you have to do certain things to it to um uh cleanse away the taint of religiosity and then when you do so it will now be purified and that this uh purified denatured uh mindfulness can then be Uh, value added into all these different realms of life and that it will bring these sort of results. So uh, you can make objections about the science. Certainly um, uh, many of the studies are are quite limited. Uh, They're often quite small. Uh, Most of the people, or actually uh, the great majority of the people running the studies, are themselves already mindfulness practitioners and promoters, so that's a, that's an issue there. And um, uh, oftentimes their uh, their their results are uh, small in scale and suggestive, not conclusive in nature. And yet, what happens is that they they publish a paper which says there there may be um, this uh, uh, limited but measurable effect which mindfulness has on this particular condition. Well, then the next step is that uh, sort of uh, people in the self-help or pop psychology uh, fields they read this uh, paper or they hear about it, and then they say in their more general consumption uh, audience uh, uh, works they say mindfulness has been scientifically proven to change your life, uh, you know. And maybe they cite a paper, or maybe they don't. Which their readers or, or listeners are never going to go and look up that thing in, in, in you know the, the medical journal, this sort of thing. And they make claims that go well beyond the claims of the original science. So even if the science is uh, perfectly valid, I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it isn't. I'm not a scientist. I'm not actually qualified to judge uh, those claims. But I can know what happens with those claims. The claims are are made, and then they're expanded, and they're expanded further as it goes further and further into the uh, 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 the sort of um, uh, pop culture, and uh, therefore mindfulness comes to be a sort of universal panacea when. The original studies are, are are often much more limited and 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 hopefully a professional in, in their nature, so uh, that's one thing to note there. Um, another thing is that whether or not it is scientific or is secular, and I still want to say that these are these are arguments and strategies; they're not facts, right? Um, it is certainly connected to religion, and it does religious work. So when it's presented as being scientific. It's scientific, and you should add it into your life, and it's going to make your life better. And you're going to have your suffering reduced, and uh, you're going to go on to to be happy in these sort of ways. And uh, so it's it's sort of um, uh, doing religious work on a small private scale there. But for most of these promoters, there's a sense that um, happiness—if uh, you increase everyone's happiness—that this is a wonderful thing. So they, there's a, there's um a, uh, there's a world view here. There's a goal of making everyone happy, making the world happier, making society a better place, and so these are these are moral judgments. These are values that are connected to this sort of thing. So, even if you want to accept the the, the uh, hardest interpretation of this as scientific and secular, it nonetheless is reproducing the work that religions do. Uh, while, while wearing this uh, uh, guise of being secular. And, and I think that's a, something for us uh, to note.
1: Mm-hmm. One thing we haven't uh, touched on yet that you write about in your book uh, is about the relationship between gender and mindfulness. Uh, how exactly is mindfulness gendered?
0: Okay, so this is a, a topic that uh, is near and dear to my heart uh, at the moment. I, I've just come from uh, delivering a paper at the American Academy of Religion on, on this very topic, so uh, my, my brain is full of this today. Uh, My paper there was about mindful femininities, uh, the idea that uh, mindfulness is being used to promote uh, various visions of um, uh, womanhood, proper womanhood, proper uh, roles, exciting or uh, useful or necessary roles for women in contemporary uh, uh, American culture, that mindfulness is helping people to uh, fulfill these roles, and uh, it actually becomes part of a, a feminine lifestyle, So uh, I used various examples. Uh, For example, uh, when we look at the mindful parenting movement, this is one sub-movement within the mindfulness movement, uh, we find that uh, uh, there's a lot of representation of women in this situation. There's lots and lots of... um, blogs and articles and books that are about uh, being a mindful mother, about mindful mothering. There's very little material that's uh, explicitly about mindful fathering. It doesn't mean that um, some sort of generic mindful parenting guide can't be read by a father versus a mother, but we have to note that when gender appears overtly, it's almost always the female gender, which is being talked about, and not the male gender. And uh, we have uh, books like um, uh, The Mindful Woman, We don't have a book uh, that I'm aware of called The Mindful Man, this sort of thing. And we see um, a lot of uh, interesting uh, uh, aspects of um, uh, sort of uh, fashion and um, uh, even uh, jewelry and these sort of things being sold with a a mindfulness uh, uh, tag uh, uh, on it. And uh, that somehow uh, dressing a certain way or wearing certain things, these are actually mindfulness practices because as you put on your jewelry, you're, you can be mindful and think, you know, intentionally how you want to live out your life in this way. Or um, uh, being mindfulness will um, help you in various parts of your life and you'll get the things that you want um, as, a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a young woman sort of uh, making her way in the world. I really don't see this sort of advice being given out to, to men uh, uh, um, overtly in this way. We also have to look at the uh, sort of the, the the faces of mindfulness, right? So uh, there's uh, an awful lot of books out there published on mindfulness, and there's an awful lot of women on the covers of those books, especially on things like mindful eating, mindful parenting. They almost always have a female or a, the parts of a female on the covers if if they have any human figures. If there are... Male figures, and there's far fewer books that have male figures on them. They're almost always also female figures, Uh, so you don't find uh, uh, males uh, in their solitaire in in their solitude. Excuse me, but uh, you you find uh, female figures in this way. Look at the covers of uh, the popular magazines; it's very often uh, women that are depicted in this way. So, uh, I think there's a real sort of connection here. The funny thing is um, that there certainly are. Unexplored male uh, role models in uh, in the mindfulness movement, and sort of the, the the professional mindfulness instructor might well be one of these. So uh, someone like John Kabat-Zinn or, or or someone else in in that uh, sort of professionalized mode, wearing you know a, a, a nicely tailored uh, but casual uh, suit and with a with a, a professional uh, haircut and uh, speaking um, in, in in a calm and authoritative manner about how scientific. And rational it is to do the practice of mindfulness. I would say that this is this is actually drawing on male gender norms, at least of, of a certain uh, class, um, but they're not surfaced as being male. Gender norms. That's that's just a scientist being a scientist or a doctor being a doctor. But you have all this stuff about um, mindful femininity, much more overtly. Like it's about it's about um, uh, people who are wearing dresses and wearing uh, uh, jewelry and hat, and they have uh, certain hairstyles, and they are mindful about their self presentation in these ways, and they're mindful about how they eat, uh, because uh, the the sad truth of the matter is that. Uh, eating disorders, which mindful eating is partially designed uh, as as a solution to, um, eating disorders are overwhelmingly uh, uh, found among uh, women in, in North America. Right, not to say there aren't any males, but is is a very gendered sort of thing. Right, uh, parenting again, this is one of the biggest subgenres. Uh, parenting duties in two thousand and fourteen still strongly fall upon the women in society and not upon their male partners if they have male partners Mm -hmm. right so uh, there's many ways in which uh, gender is really uh, tied into uh, this uh, mindfulness movement but it isn't uh, something that's been very actively explored
1: so i think you're making a pretty compelling case about the connection between female gender norms and the marketing of mindfulness my question is why do you think that that's happening why is there a connection
0: there so uh, part of it is that um, it's been found that uh, women are enthusiastic consumers of mindfulness, both mindfulness as a product or a commodity itself, and various uh products or commodities that mindfulness can be used to promote. So when we think of what you know mindfulness what is it what are its associations? A lot of it is with um uh health, healthy living with uh, style with um uh beauty products when when you're just go look and looking to see mindful this mindful that what products you know what companies are putting mindful you know into the words in their either in their advertising copy or in the actual names of their products they tend to be these sort of um environmentally conscious uh, uh, allegedly or healthy allegedly or uh stylish allegedly sort of things, and these are not only female concerns. But uh, they uh, speak to thing, uh, ideas of uh, self-care, self-nurturance, and also uh, care for others, which are often uh, gendered in uh, uh, female ways. And uh, certainly something like um, you know, mindful um, uh, fashion companies, uh, these tend to uh, speak more to, to uh, women than to men. That said, it doesn't mean that there's nothing like this. There's there's a company, for example, called uh, Best Dressed Monk, which uses... Uh, uh, mindfulness uh, rhetoric in in its ads, and it's uh, primarily uh, marketing uh, uh, upscale uh, fashions for for men. So men are not entirely absent from it, but uh, I think uh, also because an awful lot of the discussion of mindfulness these days is in the self-help genre, and uh, women are uh, quite uh, active consumers of that particular genre of of, uh, literature, right? So uh, it it really is, uh, therefore, uh, naturally skewed in that direction.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, something that we've been covering a lot uh, in this conversation um, is that the dialogue surrounding mindfulness has a lot to tell us about ourselves as 21st century Americans. How might that be?
0: So I think that uh, what it comes down to is that looking at the mindfulness uh, movement and how it's grown in the ways that it's grown and the directions that it's grown, it it shows us things about ourselves. It reveals things about ourselves as as a society. Um, it shows us what our desires are. We want better sex. We want to be thin. We want our parent uh, our children to uh, stop stop screaming and pay attention to us, right? And we want to be better parents. We want to stop screaming at our unruly children, right? Uh, we want uh, uh, a better education. We want better health. You know, it's it's not. Uh, uh, to me, a coincidence that uh, mindfulness as a health uh, maintenance strategy uh, that you can take on yourself and that allegedly doesn't cost you anything, this is so popular in a, a large uh, industrialized society that does not have good comprehensive health care, right? I don't think that these are coincidences here. So it shows us um, what, are our de- what our desires are and what our needs are, by showing us what we want mindfulness to do for us. It also shows us uh, the limits uh, of uh, aspects of our society because we look at the things that mindfulness could be allegedly applied to and uh, we can see where there's things that we don't want. So we don't find that mindfulness is used uh, as a strategy or tactic a practice to uh, help with renunciation which is what its uh, original context was in in Asia, right? So that tells us about uh, hang-ups or limits that we have around the idea of renunciation. And uh, it shows us uh, uh, also uh, our our willingness to take on uh, aspects of uh, originally foreign cultures in order to better our lives, but um, the things that we bulk at uh, as well. So I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, just by looking at this uh, phenomenon. It's not only revelatory of the nature of Buddhism in the 21st century, but it shows us aspects of of, uh, who we are, for better or for worse, who we want to be, what we feel are the problems that we have. It reveals these things to us when we look to see uh, what we've thought mindfulness was supposed to deliver to us.
1: So it works as kind of mirror into our own psyches, I suppose.
0: I suppose that is one way you could look at it, definitely.
1: Uh, Obviously, you know, the mindfulness movement has come out of Buddhism And you could ask, what does this mindfulness movement mean for the Buddhists?
0: Well, there's a lot of different effects that uh, the creation of this uh, sort of massive mindfulness industry has on, on Buddhism, specifically in North America and uh one one thing is that it alters uh, uh basically the uh the, the landscape it alters the environment that buddhism uh exists in so uh once upon a time buddhism was relatively ignored and uh it's it, you know developed in its own sort of ways Uh, and uh, elements of Buddhism seemed uh, foreign or strange or so on. But now at least one aspect of Buddhism, mindfulness meditation, has become very popular and has become in many ways the cultural property of not only Buddhists but of non-Buddhists as well. So that uh, causes people to believe that they understand what's going on with meditation. They say, Oh, meditation is mindfulness, and mindfulness has no content. And mindfulness is what helps me to uh, uh, eat well and, and be healthy in these things. And that's actually the goal of of uh, meditation, essentially, right? So, and and that um, uh, mindfulness and that meditation in general is somehow uh, scientific, that is not religious, and so on. So this uh, puts pressure on uh, overtly Buddhist communities to conform to this larger uh, cultural narrative. The funny thing is that the Buddhists sort of give mindfulness uh, to the rest of the culture, and then the rest of the culture takes it and and expands on it, and now the Buddhists have to work uh, in that environment where uh, they're being told that Buddhism is about mindfulness and mindfulness is about uh, being happy in the present moment. So there are uh, aspects of Buddhism that uh, would agree with that, but there's an awful lot more to Buddhism including there's uh, fairly substantial uh, uh, in size uh, groups, uh, Buddhist groups in, in the United States that have uh, very different orientations uh, within Buddhism that where they're uh, working on nirvana or they have other sorts of um, uh, goals in mind. But now they have to uh, deal with in various ways the fact that uh, everybody thinks that it's about mindfulness. So that people are coming to their monasteries, or coming to their uh, temples, or whatever, and saying, um, "I heard I heard about mindfulness on CNN, and uh, I want to uh, do better at work, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, can can you teach me to meditate, right?" And that's not necessarily the goal that uh, these Buddhist institutions have, and certainly not necessarily the way they were founded. Now, some of them then take on mindfulness training uh, for the public as a strategy uh, to help them to bring people in, thinking, well, I'll give them meditation, and then that'll be kind of the hook. And once they're hooked, then they'll come into uh, mainstream Buddhism and they'll they'll do all these other sort of things, right? So they're using it sort of strategically in this way. Or uh, they may say, uh, gosh, mindfulness is not actually a practice in our school. There's many forms of Buddhism where mindfulness is not 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 a central uh, practice, certainly not for lay people. Um, but now I feel like I have to provide it and I have to focus on this be, uh, ra- to the uh, relative detriment of my school's actual traditions and practices in this way. So uh, this is certainly uh, uh, another sort of uh, pattern that can happen there. Also, when it all gets framed as scientific, then religious groups, they can they can be pleased and say, hey, this is great. Um, science has proven some aspects of, of our religion. But that's sort of a Trojan horse in a way because then you say, well, this stuff is good because it's been scientifically proven. All this other stuff, which is also important to the people in the tradition, has not been scientifically proven. So maybe it should go by the wayside. So now, what you have is allegedly secularized mindfulness is is dictating in certain ways, uh, potentially to uh, the religious groups what their uh, religious uh, tradition should be about. So that's an interesting uh, sort of effect, and uh, I'll, I'll need to explore uh, more of this in, in the future with my research.
1: Mm-hmm. So, in a way, the selling of mindfulness is making the rest of Buddhism that's not so sexy a tougher sell.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Potentially, you know, and and uh, people have different reactions. Some will say. Good. You know, uh the last thing we want is sexy Buddhism and uh it's good that you can't commodify elements of the tradition and that will help us to preserve those sort of things. And then others will say, uh, well this is a real problem. So there's many potential um attitudes out there. It's not it's not really my goal or really my role to uh, uh say that uh this is a, a legitimate or illegitimate uh purpose you know, a way of using this sort of thing. And, uh, or to say that these groups should be uh, unaffected by changes in the uh, culture around them. But it is interesting to note these things are going on and uh, also to see the power differentials that, that exist in these sort of uh, situations.
1: Um, what, what exactly do you mean by the power differentials?
0: So uh, the mindfulness movement is diverse in its totality, but it is overwhelmingly uh, white and middle class and professional class specifically. So... People are basically taking uh practices which were originally the practices of uh you know Asian people, mostly uh monks and in some cases nuns. There were monastics who lived in a very different type of society, even within their own societies right and were used for very uh uh different goals than what we see here so uh now you have the the authority over these practices um, being taken away from them, and uh, many people in the mindfulness movement talk about. Um, this isn't a monastic path, and that's a selling point for them. This meets you where where you are. In other words, monasticism is dead, or it's defunct, or it's, 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 it's outdated. It, it, there's no need for it, right? And uh, we, the white professionals, uh, are able to teach you about mindfulness, often for a fee. I mean, there's many people making their their livings these days as mindfulness instructors, which was not a class of professional that you had a generation or two ago, and you certainly did not have this in Asian Buddhist history, right? So um, uh, you monks will uh, go by the wayside, and I guess you'll have to grow up and get a job at Google or something like that. We will have the have the control over mindfulness instruction and will be put to the uses that we uh, already empowered uh, uh, white people in the professional class uh, believe are the most appropriate uh, purposes. Now, I'm not trying to say that White people, or middle class people, or upper middle class, or professional—that these people don't suffer, that these people should not have their suffering dealt with, and that they are not—that's uh, uh, not right for them to practice mindfulness or anything like that. I, I in no way mean that. I'm just noting that the authority over these things shifts, and that there are, among other things, economic consequences of these shifts, and that the the people who have the greatest uh, degree of power they end up coming to have the control over this. So just as we note that um, these days wealth distribution tends to happen, that the wealthy get wealthier and there's racial and class and other implications there. And so there's a transference of wealth from people in uh, the allegedly uh, marginal positions into uh, these empowered positions. There's a transfer of authority and knowledge um, uh, over uh, uh, religious practices from various Asian traditions. We see this with yoga as well. Uh we see this with mindfulness. You can create a whole list of these things and uh they they become now available uh for the uh consumption and redeployment of the people who are already relatively empowered in these situations anyways, by uh by by their uh cultures.
1: Well thank you so much Jeff for joining us.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's uh, my pleasure.